welcome to the North American Alporn podcast. Uh, today, Sean and I are going to be joined by Tony Brazelton, who is my father and was the first person who really wanted to kick off the North American Alporn retreat, as well as uh, having done a lot for the Alporn of the United States. Heads up to the audience, we are at the North American Alporn retreat, so you are liable to hear some Alporn <laughs> players in the background or just kind of some of the other conversations that you're going to pick up uh, when you attend when you attend an event like this. Tony, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, or I should say thank you guys for coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been eight months we've been trying to get you on this, so yeah. we pinned you down. Okay. Yeah, Sean, um, I don't know if you have any specific questions for Dad to oh, start it off. Oh, my goodness, we'll kinda... I have got so many questions, Tony. Um, but... Why don't you start with your history as a musician and how you were first introduced to the Alphorn all those years ago? Okay, so um, my music career, I always kind of liked it, practicing and everything, and then I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in music education and then didn't really want to teach, so I got a master's degree in uh, trumpet performance in Reno, Nevada, and worked there. And various groups, had a lot of my own groups, like a Dixieland band, a brass quintet, a Civil War band, uh, a German <laughs> Blascapella band, and uh, just all kinds of stuff. And then mostly worked corporate and in private events like that. And then at the end of 80, I called it the decade of the duo, when all the synthesizers were coming out. And so all the work was going the opposite direction. So the house orchestras were really being scaled way back because they had a bank of synthesizers and they could have a, here's my string sounds and here's my brass sounds. And they didn't need to hire us anymore. So all these musicians were vying for the same performances. And so at that time, my wife wanted to get her doctorate in uh, nursing informatics. And so we one of the two programs was in Salt Lake or in Maryland. And so we chose Salt Lake because we just had started a family with Robert and both our parents lived in Green River, Wyoming. So it was close, close enough, not too close, not too far away. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were only going to be here two years, but uh, what happened was because of the Las Capella band I had formed, I had met Brian Preby. And then, so he wanted to do a Blas Capella band, so we put one together, which is just um, just instruments, and so we really don't have any vocals with that. And when Salt Air had first reopened, they had an Oktoberfest, and so I had a little German band out there, and Carrie Christensen, who had just quit performing at the Epcot Center, he was the featured yodeler there, and so he came out, he goes, well, I've never heard of this band. Who's that? <laughs> and the name of the band was the BMWs, Bavarian Music Vecca. Anyway, so he goes, well, I like your playing, but I don't like anybody else's playing. So should we start, a, I'd like to start a band. But he wanted to start a band that was uh, kind of an offshoot of what the Epcot Center was. So there's quite a few bands that where the musicians traveled through there, then they started an incarnation of That's that. That's right. And so I remember that. That I remember that whole era through, yeah. through there. Yeah. yeah, so the thing was, we weren't going to be a polka band. We were going to be more of a show band. And in part of that, then we would have the yodeling, the cowbells, the Holsonist Collector, which is a four-road 
xylophone and then the alphorns. And so Carrie goes, you guys are going to have to learn how to play the alphorns. Well, we didn't really know about the alphorns. And so Carrie was performing up the Goldner Hirsch, which they had an alphorn on the wall. So he was able to bring it down. And so Brian started out playing first couple things with the alphorns. And then after that, I did some research and found out there's a guy, Joe Littleton, who was making alphorns, which didn't break the bank. They were made out of a fiber resin compound, but they were wrapped with rattan. They played very well, but I got tired of replying to everybody that goes, what are they made out of? And I would go, traditionally, they'd be made out of a tree. And so then we ended up working on getting some other horns. And then in the meantime, we had gone over to Switzerland, and I had uh, acquired a stalker horn from a man, uh, Jim Gigi who's now passed, but he was uh, kind of the, the United States rep for Stalker. Right. And in that, we went over there, and a couple times uh, we were able to participate in a retreat, something like what we're doing here, but we didn't really have, they weren't the best horns that they had for us to use. So the thing was, after we finally met Bill, and Bill said he would come, as long as somebody else did the organizing. So Robbie's been doing the organizing of that. And so yeah, I was going to say, this one didn't, it didn't start out with me being the, the lead organizer. But yeah. after, over, over the years, I think after about year seven, yeah, so I, it really transitioned into me being the, the main organizer of the yeah. event. And then, so because of our experiences of not having great horns to play when we got to Switzerland... What I decided was I was going to have decent horns for people to play or rent. And so at that point, I ordered eight uh, Stalker Alphorns. So people would have those to start with. And then, and I ended up ma- making friends with other uh, makers, uh, Gerald Poe, Roland Zahner, Herbert Hinze, and uh, Franz Schussel. I have some, had some Bernatones and um, Barchies. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and it's uh, just for everyone who's listening who uh, might be interested in attending this event. If you've kind of done some research on alphorns, but you just don't even really know where to start or what different makers' horns feel like to play or to sound like, if you were to come to this event, Dad and I actually have horns uh, just off to my left here. I think we've got about <laughs> 20 alphorns sitting here from five or six different makers. Mm-hmm. And one of the other goals that we have is if someone doesn't know where to start on this and they don't want to necessarily buy a horn before they have a chance to try them, when you come to this event, you have the opportunity to try several horns from different makers made of different woods. And then we also have mouthpieces in all sorts of sizes and different woods from different makers and music. And uh, we just try to have a nice selection of all those things that if you want to play an alphorn, we have all of the resources here for you to try things before you decide to buy one. And then all of the things that you need to get started with music and kind of all of the other pieces that go into it other than, and, and just try to keep you from getting in a situation where you buy an Alphorn and then you have to figure out what to do with it and where to find these things, especially here at the event we have access to all of these and you can try anything you want through the four-day event. And if you're intimidated by this, if, you, if you're if you worried about coming in and not having that background, I can tell you, having done this, 
it, you'll feel very at ease and and welcomed by the this whole Alporn family. It's amazing. Yeah, it's just uh, the community of Alporn. <laughs> it's a family. Floors, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Tony, going back, what year was that? that you and Brian hooked up. And I didn't realize that your relationship with Brian goes back that far. Yeah, so the band Salzburger Echo has been together since 1992. So 29, 30, 30, 29 years. Yeah, wow. Okay. And so Brian and then another gentleman, uh, Reed Lashimanot, were the first two guys I really kind of met here. And they're both really good friends of mine, but we met doing a recording session. And Brian left about 98 so he worked with me for about six first six and years. And then went to D.C. Yeah, and, but then we've been still performing right. with each other and then going to Europe and competing, and then I fly I, him in for other performances. I didn't realize it was that far back that you and Brian had that relationship. So yeah, you get this interest in, in the Alporn. You, you play this Alporn. Then you go to Europe. You, you went there specifically to find makers and look. Yeah, so uh, at that time, I had played the stalker, had a stalker, and I wanted to meet Gerald Poe because at that time I was told that he was like the best maker right. of Alporns. At the, and, well, he's still right there <laughs> among the best. Anyway, so I was trying to buy one of his Alporns for like almost two years, and he wouldn't sell me one. <laughs> because so, he didn't... You didn't have credibility. He didn't think he you didn't could know play. who I was or anything. He was like, no, you're, yeah. you have to perform at this level before I'll talk to you. Yeah, so then uh, <laughs> what it was is uh, I asked my wife, it's like, uh, want to go to Switzerland? She goes, well, when? Well, let's go in January. And so we took off, and I told, uh, sent Gerald an email that we were going there, and he goes, whoa, wait, wait, wait. And then, so anyway, how it worked out, for those local people that uh, know Snowbird or yeah. uh, Solitude from where my house is, we ended up getting a, a room up at one of the ski areas, up just up the canyon. And come to find out, uh, I had no idea where Poe lived, but, you know, Switzerland's a small country. We, you you right. can find him. That's right. But it ended up like he's just like, down the hill at the base, <laughs> and so I had some translators. Uh, so he came up and met me, and then he said, "All right, tomorrow at eleven o'clock, meet me at this roundabout, and I'll take." Then he took me to his house, and so then I pl- performed for him, and then so we were, and his wife, um, she speaks French, German, and a little bit of English, but basically. Uh, it came down to where we were drawing a lot of pictures, communicating in in his living room. But he heard you perform, and, and yeah, so I played for him and said, then, "Okay, this guy's worthy of one of my horns." Yeah. And, and so he just gave me the horn, and uh, gave, just gave a, it to you. Well, uh, and a bank account number. <laughs> well, that's a you never met him before. No. Here you go. Here's the, here's one of my horns. Yeah. So. And then I still have that horn. Uh, uh, yeah, one of our attendees is uh, renting that horn for the event as, as we speak. Is that the matter? That's the Matterhorn. No, no, this no, is that's not. No, this is the uh, this is the one with the dragon on it. The yeah. dragon horn, yes. Yeah, the okay. dragon horn. So, what I like to do is bring in horns 
without anything on them. And then if somebody buys one, then they can live with it and then create uh, whatever scene they want. Or if they like it just plain because the wood grains are really nice, then they might leave it that way. But I lived with that horn for quite a while. And then so I put the Pilatus dragon on there. So my brother carved it and kind of tattooed the colors on it. So this is part of the Alporn legend. Tell the story of the dragon. Yeah. Well, the dragon, it, oh, there's a couple of different variations on it, but right. uh, the dragon kind of saved a lot of the youth that had fallen into uh, one of the crevices on the mountain. And they lived off of what they called moon cheese that grew in the, so I'm not sure. I, but anyway, so that was a big legend. So typically it's red, but this one is blue. So but, uh, it, there's a whole folklore right. about the Mount Pilatus dragon and the whole mountain because it has certain energy. Um, for those of us in the United States that uh, know the kind of the mystery or mystique about Mount Shasta, where there's supposed to be people living in inside the volcano and stuff like that. So that kind of goes back to where... That is. But this is very connected to the Alporn history and yes. legend and, and the whole mythology, too. Yes. So for those of you that aren't aware of yeah, that. It's a, yeah, it's a good read. And, you yes. know, yeah, and that's, uh, there's actually quite a few makers that live right over in Letzern, right? Uh, uh, Stalker, Tobias, Barchi. Oh, I can't remember. There's two or three other ones that... That I just now, they're new uh, makers that live right there in that area. So, And what year was that that you ended up going to Switzerland? Shortly after this concert in 92? Uh, no, I think, so was, you, I think, really started playing the Alphorns, was it about 1995? Yeah. When those so started to become later. a major part of the show. Yeah, and then that was, uh, and then, then it kind of took on its uh, life of its own. If I can remember, I think it would have been somewhere between, would have been about like 2004 when you went over and met Poe? Maybe. Because I think the first time I went over was in 2006, 2007. Yeah, so I had gone over and then he invited us when he was still kind of on the ground floor of the Ninda International Competition and Festival. So... There's all of this activity with Bill Hobson that had been going on for several years before, and uh, we're lucky to have Bill here uh, this year. But talk about your relationship with with Bill and how you found this other island of the Alphorn yeah. in Canada. <laughs> so, you know, I'd heard about Bill. We knew all about Bill, and so one year... We were going to the competition in Ninda, and so we took off from Ninda and drove over to Schönrie or Beistad. There's a church in Fritz Ferrucci. They were doing a concert, and Bill was teaching with Fritz at that time. And so we get there, and we find the church, and we get there, and we're looking around, and there's nobody here. And so we finally find a caretaker for the church, and he goes, yeah, the concert was last weekend. Oh, no. So then we made a, a point to go to Fritz's camp, and that's uh, above Chonrier. Yeah, right. so we attended Fritz's camp, uh, which is the one that takes place um, 
at horn the flu? horn flu at the, the horn, horn flu. flu the horn flu which is the hotel and that's right next to the the hornberg yep. mountain yep. so you were you were with yeah this uh, other than other than the first trip where dad went to meet poe and got the the first poe alporn i i've been i think you've been every time every time i think maybe except for one but i i was there when we went over and met bill and uh, actually the the first time that we went over uh, to compete at nanda so it ended up we were Brian, Dad, and myself were the first Americans that had ever gone over. That's right. And uh, it was supposed to be by random draw for when everyone's playing times were selected. I'm not entirely convinced that my playing time was <laughs> random because uh, for the uh, for the first day of competition that year, I was the very first contestant that went up. He was the youngest ever to compete. At that point, I was the youngest that had ever competed. And actually, because of my going over a couple times, I, I think that actually helped create um, where they, they started. Um, they actually started to include a youth category. Yes. Okay, wow. um, Otherwise, you know, he was scored against uh, all, the, every, all, the, every, all the artists. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was just the solo category. Yeah. And I had to play my solo against everyone who'd been playing Alborn their entire life. But because I ended up being the first person who went that day, because of that, I will forever and always be the first American that ever competed in Nanda. Love it. Yeah. Um, and then he was on a lot of uh, various TV programs. Yeah, I think the reason I think it was not random that I was first is that was the only time that was going to be guaranteed when it happened. Yeah, so you had all the TV cameras. And there. there was TV cameras and people to interview. And, um, you know, I was, at that point, I think I was about 14 yeah, maybe. So wow. I think I was about Amazing. 14 when we did, went over the first time for the competition. No, you've been younger than that because uh, we've been doing this 13. camp. Uh, yeah, well, let's 13, see. I turned. 13. Yeah. This is year 14. We started this in 2008. Yeah, we so met. So I think, I think I was about 14, 13, wow. yeah, somewhere 14. Incredible. Anyway, yeah. And then the funny thing about that, to continue with Robbie being on TV, so we went over to um, Zermatt. And there's a church and then a plaza, and they have various entertainment there. And it just happened to be that uh, Kurt Ott and his wife, um, they do a alphorn and pan flute duo thing, and then they have tracks. And so I wanted to go up and just talk to them. And so Robbie came with me, and they, they were like, oh, I know you. So they remember seeing him on TV. So he, that was pretty funny that Kurt Ott, who's quite a known uh, yeah, alphornist right. over there. Yeah, so that was kind of fun. So we're going to bookmark this. I, I've got a lot of questions about Robert that we're going to come back to. What, over the last 30 years, between you and Bill, you the, the two of you have been really the custodians of the alphorn art form. I mean, talk about that history and evolution to be you became the guy in north america for yeah it wasn't yeah. like i i didn't you know say one morning i'm going to be the guy no, it, no it talk just, about talk about this evolution so it just uh, started happening and then i just wanted to make sure that people had a more accessible experience of getting alphorns than i did and like we had an earlier podcast with peggy she had gone over and met like seven different Alborn players, but makers. Yeah. And so the problem with that is that's wonderful. You get to meet one guy here and play a horn, but then it might be a day or two before you can 
meet the other maker. And so you lose a whole point of reference between that outpouring compared to this outpouring. How does it fit my style? Right. And so that's how we started doing this is that we made it so people could just come and really find music, find mouthpieces and everything. Because like Robbie had mentioned earlier, you know, you order, you go, okay, this is supposed to be a great maker. And they are handmade. And so not everyone is all different. They're all just a little bit different. And so you get it and you've never played it. And there's been some people not real happy with that experience. Right. Whereas if you get to play a horn, it's like, you know, the last trumpet I got, I, I went down to, the guy was in Vegas, and we just put different bells, lead pipes, and all different come, you know, sizes and everything. And then he had others, some other really great trumpet players came in and were listening to me play, and then we were able to determine, hey, this fits for me. And that's the experience I want to, people to walk away from here is like, yeah. And then, so it's just kind of grown, and then I just wanted to get more horns. And then we try to make it so somebody that is really concerned about the price of a horn, we can get them into a decent horn that plays well for a reasonable price. Yeah. But you can spend anywhere from $1,200 to 12000 Or more. Well, if you want to pay more, yeah, we can work that out. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how it, it kind of evolved. And then because I had met Fritz Frucci, and he had all this music, and it was so nice to be able to go to his place, and he had quite a few different horns. And so I wanted to kind of replicate that experience. And Bill had been teaching with uh, Fritz for, I don't know, 20 years maybe? Bill would have to tell you. Yeah, and I it think... It was a long time. I mean, what Bill was doing in, in Canada is such an interesting story. We, we talked about some of that earlier this year with bill and a lot of his work early on was in switzerland and he, he was this guy going to switzerland and this guy's yeah you're, you're not swiss and you're you really get this instrument yeah. and and then this relationship between you and bill really sparked and, and friendship and collaboration over the years has sparked this long history between the two of you and i think that now the the real story is the two sons, yeah, Robert and, and Jim, who was the next generation of Alphorns in North America. Yeah. Amazing. And it was kind of funny when uh, Robbie was uh, performing, I think he was, maybe you were performing with the band when we were out at Mount Angel, and it was one of the first years Jim had come down with Espon, and so they got to meet, and then they, he didn't really know we were going to be there performing, <laughs> and I didn't know Jim was going to be there performing. And so we... That's been yeah. quite a while. Well, I think Jim had actually come and um, helped teach at one event before that. And it then it was just, we were like walking through the crowd and saw each other and had yeah. to do one of the like double takes where our heads kind of snapped to the sides. Like, is that, is that who I think it is? And then, yeah. And the joke has always been, are you two brothers or twins? Yeah. Until I grew my beard out. That was a pretty now, common question. Yes. <laughs> Okay, well let's let's go back to Robert for a minute because I'm dying to know when when and what was you as a father? Music's always been a central part of your life. How did you bring Robert into well um, music and so in the 
Well, I've always had like a trumpet room, so I've always had trumpets and things scattered all over. So, so you've he, always had instruments. So he could go over and play whatever he wanted, and, and he decided to play uh, trumpet in school band. Okay. And later, there were so many trumpet players, and then he decided that listening to the baritone was like, wow, those guys get these really nice counter melodies, <laughs> and there's only one other one. So he's like, yeah. Yeah. So the baritone, so he started playing uh, a little bit more baritone. And then in the process, he was able to, uh, you know, Alporns were there, so it's very similar. And then that's how he got started, is I needed uh, someone to go perform a Fourth of July parade for me, with me up at uh, Park City. So we start at the top of the hill, and then we walk down. And so it's better than walking up the hill. Yes. Anyway, so then he goes, as, well... As I remember the conversation going... Dad said, "Hey, I need an I need another person to come do this performance. Uh, if you want to learn like a couple notes on the Alphorn and then carry it down the street and stop every once in a while, I'll, I'll give you a hundred bucks." And I was and like, then, "I'll carry sold hundred bucks." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, when I was like twelve or thirteen at the time, like yeah. that was was he? When did you make him join the union? Oh well, when he started <laughs> well. Actually, I was probably was, 16, 17. Yeah, 16, 17. Cause I was the, actually, I was the secretary treasurer of the musicians' yeah. union for 18 years. It's pretty hard to go out on a performance when your father's the secretary treasurer and not be a card-carrying member. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you, you had instruments laying around the house all the time, and you were always playing, you were always practicing, you were always performing. So Robert just picked up the instruments and played, and then played in school, yeah, but okay. Th- th- when did you see this connection with the Alporn? Was it that? Was that the? Yeah, it event? just kind of it just kept going, growing more and more. It was that the parade. Yeah. So it after was. that, then we just started doing more and more things. And then he was able to, because of the baritone experience, he was able to carry the lower parts yeah. pretty well. And still. Yeah, and still does that. Still is amazing. Yeah, and so that's just kind of evolution. You know, it's like never forced him to do anything. Just if you want to do it, it's there. The other kids have an interest in music. Yeah, my uh, daughter she was into uh, theater and then played guitar for quite a while. And then I don't know. If she hasn't. I don't think she has did. so much recently, but no. I think she still has guitars around. So. Yeah. So if she ever, but it's Robert really that. Yeah, had, had this, and then he kind of learned how to yodel, based on just driving and listening to Kerry oh, wow. Christensen's um, instructional CD, which is called "You Too Can Yodel." So he has, <laughs> yeah, a lot exercises of that. Uh, <laughs> so he has exercises, and then you just replicate, then you just imitate that, and that's how Robbie learned. So before I did um, a lot of stage performance with the band. I would go a lot of times. I, I would I was I would have been in college at this point and, and doing uh, some classes, but my my schedule was a lot more flexible than most of the other members of the band. So for a lot of our out of town performances, I would get hired to drive the equipment to the venue and then meet the other players so that they could fly in and maintain their their day jobs as well. And so I had a lot of time cover an open road going between Oktoberfests. Sure. So it just was an easier way for like, and then it was a little bit of a, it sparks like, you know, I've been around this a long time. I should learn how to yodel. And then I had time and access to the materials so that I could practice. And 
Yeah. I, I'm kind of a hybrid of self-taught plus using kind of the method of Carrie Christensen's stuff and and then just replicating the songs that the band does. Yep. That's a, and listen to our recordings. Sure. So, I don't know how many recordings do we have now. Nine. Um, I think you have seven studio albums plus the best of. Hey. Oh yeah, and then we discontinued that our very first one in the Rockies. Yeah, but that's the the whole anthology that the band has is I think there's four band CDs and then there's the the best of the compilation CD and then we have three that are Alporn specific. Yeah. I have so such a long history and I I love this story as I said that you and Bill have this long relationship and have become legends in North America and, and frankly in Europe as well with the Alphorn and just like for hundreds of years the fathers would pass down the art form to their sons yeah the typically you, it would it would started out with uh, the sons and right. currently over the last probably 20 years female uh, Alporn is some of them are some of the best ones are female and they're just great Absolutely. players and and it's really opened up uh, for everybody you know, it's just not and Robert and I talk about this a lot that you look at at the future of Alporn and artists like Eliana Berkey and uh, Monica and Natalie, and there are so many great... Yeah. And Dr. Demers, I think, would be oh, one of the first the, ones that really took up the mantle to try to diversify. Artists. Yeah, So, and then she was, like, went on her podcast, she was kind of invited along, and so she was probably one of the first females that, uh, back in in that did, that time period. Yeah, she she definitely has done a huge, uh, a huge amount of work in showing that women can do this at as high a level as anyone else. And and that's done a lot to show that, frankly, it shows that the Alporn isn't just for old white guys. Like, and that's (laughs) kind of what we're trying to prove is that this is an instrument for everyone. Yeah, and that kind of comes from the symphonic uh, world, whereas the French horn is both male and female. And a lot of the great uh, players are female players. And so it easily carries over to the Alporn from that. And like you know, it's like you know, other instruments. Now there's uh, there didn't used to be uh, female trumpet players. There's actually about four really fine trumpet female trumpet players here in the Salt Lake area that there just are. great players. That's know? right. And so it's not. And that's one thing about music is in that area. It's like one of my trumpet teachers uh, said years ago when I was in Reno. He goes, "I don't really care where you came from. Just get your horn out." Yeah, he was like right. he didn't care what right. conservatory you right. came from. He was just like I, I don't care. He said, "Just get your horn out." And <clears throat> so it didn't matter about gender or anything. It's just yeah, you can play. You can play. One of the things that um, has been a common thread in all of our interviews that we've done this year has been this connection to the mountains, to nature, and. Um, so a lot of people may not know this about you, Tony, that I, I do because I've got that share that interest, but you're a skier, you're a telemarker, you're a mountain climber, and 
a lot of your other hobbies are being in the mountains. So talk about your connection to the Alphorn, skiing, being in the mountains, climbing. Yeah, so it all kind of goes hand in hand. And then one of the things I call it is uh, going out in search of echoes. Search of echoes. So when you find a place, and so that's why um, I have various different Alphorns, and one of the ones that you can take uh, easily is the carbon fiber horn, which only weighs a little bit, you know, maybe a couple pounds at the most, something like that. I think it's like, what, two and a half kilos with all the different keys and the bag and everything? So, and that makes it, uh, so you can go hiking and then play it, and then it was really funny. Uh, I was up up Mill Creek Canyon here, so it's a nice place because they let dogs up that canyon. And so Daisy and myself, we were up there, and I would take my Alphorn, and then she would sit there and listen to me. And then one day I'm up there playing the Alphorn, and somebody had, with a trumpet across the valley was on the other side of the the canyon there was playing their trumpet. And it was like, huh, it's not just for Alphorns anymore. But. Uh, just to give some perspective to the listeners, Daisy is my father's uh, Springer, four-year-old English Springer English. Spaniel. Yeah, three, English Springer, English Springer Spaniel. Okay. Yes. And I, I'm always amazed to, or I guess I'm not anymore, but the, as I entered into this uh, um, Alphorn family and started connecting some of the dots, how many people were skiers, many of them ski racers and mountain climbers. And I think it's an interesting connection with, the yeah. Alphorn and the mountains. Yeah, because that's just, that's where it came from. It's, not, you know, urban echoes, not so much, but you can find some urban echoes. We were, almost yes. we were going to do a little podcast downtown. In the city. In the city, and we were going to call it Urban Echoes. Like and then, it. But then there were so many permits involved. <laughs> we couldn't do this. You couldn't be on the street. And then if you were, then if you recorded it, then that was big trouble. And then if you actually, somebody threw a, a dollar at you, you might get in jail because <laughs> you can't be busking without a permit. Well, and then the other thing maybe a lot of people don't know about you is that you've climbed a lot of mountains, like big mountains, 14,000 yeah. and uh, Yeah, the peaks highest ones I've done was uh, 17,000 and 18,000. I thought it was 1,880, but then I was looking it up, it's 18,500. Yep. And that's the third highest uh, summit in North America, and that's uh, Pico de Orizaba in uh, New Mexico. Or not New Mexico, Mexico. Mexico, And then the second highest is Mount Logan in Canada, and then uh, Denali. And then when I was training to do Denali 10 years ago, I ended up having a total hip replacement because I had had necrosis of the ball joint and then an impingement, so it was actually breaking off, and so I... Drug it around for about a year and decided I probably might need to get that taken care of. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty rough weekend. Uh, Dad and I were down um, elk hunting outside of Moab, uh, yeah. and that's when his hip decided to get really bad, re- really bad uh, <laughs> yeah. which we ended up extending our stay in Moab an extra day and, go, and uh, just driving through Arches so he didn't have to sit in the car all day on the drive back to Salt Lake. Yeah. Well, that was 10 years ago, so wow. at that time, that's when my climbing experiences kind of 
were put on the back burner. The doctor said, so I asked him, well, can I do this? He goes, well, I don't know if I'd really recommend that because I don't know if you want your hip to go out and somebody up on a big mountain trying to haul you off. And so then I went back for a checkup like five, six years after that. And he goes, well, you can do whatever you want. So I've been getting back into it a little bit. So, And then my latest one, I was doing Mount Kentaden. Yeah, this is a... And then that's the high story. So and then about the those. highest uh, peak in Maine, which is a whopping five thousand two hundred and seventy-one feet or something like that. Yes, but we but it's uh, rock and technical, say, right? Yeah, but yeah, you started those, like two thousand feet or a thousand yeah, feet something. straight up. Yeah, those peaks on the uh, on the northern end of the Appalachian Trail, they're not as tall as the mountains we have out here in the west, but they are serious mountains. And yeah, it's, it's ar- pretty it's close to, is it Mount Washington that regularly sees the highest wind speeds on Earth? Yeah, right there. that's I think out Mount Washington, the coast. Yeah. I, think that's, I think Mount Washington is in New Hampshire. Yeah, I think so. But it's, to, it's close. It's it's one of the ones that you would get to towards the end if you started on the Appalachian Trail. That would be one of the last ones. Yeah. And so I did take my carbon fiber horn. And I didn't realize it, but that whole thing is a, a preserve. It's a, for the Native Americans. And so you wow. can't play any instruments or anything that's very heavily regulated. So we show up to where you have to check in with the rangers. And they go... Wow, you got a telescope in that pack? I go, no, it's an Alphorn. What's an Alphorn? Well, it's a musical instrument. She goes, well, you can't play it. Oh, my goodness. And so I had it in there. But anyway, on the way up. Uh, but you it, took it up anyway. Yeah, well, because we, were we weren't coming back that same route. We were going to okay. do a different route. Yeah, you were going to through hike the trail. Okay. So we were going to go up one, up the Cathedral Ridge, and then we were going down this other one. And then on the way up, I fell and... So the carbon fiber came in handy because it broke my fall on my back. So know. talk about this. This is an incredible story. Well, so then some other guys came by and they go, and they, I remember them saying, he must have fallen. So I got the bleeding stopped. And then the person I was hiking with. You were uh, conscious? You were. Well, I don't know how long I might have been out. Not very long. But anyway, so then the person I was with didn't really understand the concept of hiking as a companions. <laughs> buddy the buddy system wasn't in, wasn't in the vocabulary so i had to catch up with that person so that they knew i had fallen so i ended up making the summit anyway after the fall yeah okay I didn't so i had that. to do that yeah so otherwise they would not have never found me yeah so it was made the summit after he fell and then then it was I, about 24 hours after that you called me when you were getting when you had just been um, airlifted well actually i was on the mountain 52 hours before i got by yourself well there was the person i was with and then we had uh, there was quite a few people up that weekend so we just had them tell the rangers that i wasn't doing well so i spent the night and then the next day it took me like eight hours i made like two miles Goodness. But it, then, it took a long time for you to get somewhere that you could be airlifted off. Yeah, so they had to hike down quite a ways, and then they finally got me in the helicopter. So I got a helicopter ride, which is kind of fun. No. <laughs> and then they go, <laughs> anyway, so that was uh, kind of a thing. So anyway, acute kidney failure with rhabdomyolysis. And uh, so my kidneys were at zero, 
So it's oh been two goodness. years, and my kidney function is back at 90. So they airlift you off the mountain, yeah. take you to the, the nearest hospital. The ranger station. To the ranger just, station. Yeah, and then, there's so a heli- then there was a, an ambulance there, and then they took me to this other, well, I don't want to insult anybody, but it was basically a glorified Band-Aid station. <laughs> I, I mean, you're you're talking. It's I mean, yeah, just by virtue it's very of it's remote. a remote outpost. It's very remote. Yeah, yeah. and then their, their job is to get you patched up enough to get to the hospital. Yeah, and then they uh, they were either going to take me to Boston or Bangor, so they had to wait and oh see what ICU would open up. And so Bangor opened up, and so they took me there. And then I was in ICU, and then that's when I called Robert. No, 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 no. You called me when you were at the ranger station. Still, uh, yeah. And it took it took uh, me and the rest of the family about eight hours to figure out where you were. Yeah, because no, yeah, the person I was with didn't bother telling you guys what hospital I was in. Yeah. Well, I think that was before you knew what hospital you were going yeah. to. Um, I was very glad that on that call I was able to get the information of where you had your dog boarded so I could... <laughs> like, I was able to at least make sure that the dog was taken care of. And then I actually yeah. was on a flight, like, I, as soon as I figured out where you were most likely going, booked a flight, and then when I had my layover in Detroit, it was like, well, it might be going to Boston. I was like, well, I'll figure this out when I get to New York. Wow. Did the flight to New York and then got to Portland, Maine, drove to Bangor at night after staying up all day, figuring out where you were, flying all day, and then rented a car, drove through a rainstorm to Bangor. Oh, my goodness. And then, like, was able to get in to see you at the hospital real quick. And then I couldn't, the closest hotel room I could find to Bangor was, like, 70 miles out towards Bar, Har- Bar Harbor. Bahaba. Because uh, <laughs> that was when Fish was doing their big music festival in town. Oh. That was, that was one of the times I've been the most happy to not see a moose, is driving from Portland to Bangor after traveling all day. Through a rainstorm. Oh, sure. And then how long were you in the ICU? Uh, five or six days yeah. in the ICU. ICU, you were about five days, and then I then he had to come I back. left to come cover the gigs that you he couldn't had a, make. had wow. a couple of performances that I, had to, that I wasn't going to make. And then so my daughter came out, and then she was out there two or three weeks or something like that. Oh, my goodness. And then how long were you in the hospital? Well, in the, so th- it was almost a month. You were there about then. So yeah. in ICU for almost a week, and then there for yeah. And then the reason I was there so long was because they couldn't get me into um, dialysis here in Salt Lake. Oh my gosh, that it was incredible. Uh, yeah, so they finally got I got an appointment, so I flew back, and dialysis is not a very fun thing. So my appointment was four a.m. until eight a.m. And then they go, you know, if you're going to be here for a while, you, eventually you'll move up to better times. <laughs> but I only had to do it once. So, And then my kidneys were starting to respond, and then they took out the shunt and all that kind of wonderful stuff. But anyway, oh, That's an incredible story, and you had so, your Alphorn with you. Yeah, you had the now, Alphorn. Do you think your Alphorn saved your life or caused more damage? Oh, no, it, uh, <laughs> it absorbs some fall. <laughs> it had it in there, and then it didn't break it, but yeah. So but I did take it out there with me, and I played. <laughs> if you ever been to Bahaba, up by the cannons, I've played there, yes. and then I played in front of some of the lighthouses. Right. And so I was doing my very best fog horns. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yes, if you are going to go hiking and have a major accident, uh, it seems that uh, the Zanetti carbon fiber flying horns are the ones to have with you in that situation. Yes, yes. The, the Alphorn saved your life, Tony. Yeah, it probably didn't hurt anything. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say that there was probably... Ha- Playing Alporn probably helped some of your recovery from the um, concussion, though, in having the, the cognitive uh, exercises of playing Alporn. I bet that that would play yeah. a major factor. Yeah, I still have issues with that. So, but anyway, but I do take my carbon fiber, and then, you know, so I've taken it down to uh, Chile and out to Easter Island. And it, so, and then there's a guy that if you want to follow him, it's Alp the Horn or something like that. And he has photos of yes. him going all over the place. That's right. So it's kind of fun. And he has a carbon fiber, so you can take it on the plane, no problem. And and, and they play actually really pretty well. The problem is if you get into a windy situation, there's nothing there to hold it down. <laughs> It'll take off. <laughs> yeah. But those are fun, so that's why I have a lot of different Alporns. Um, How many? Well, I have about five that I like. And then there are different ones. I have a, a Hobson. I have yep. uh, Barchi. Right. Have Zoners. Have um, Stockers. So, a whole bunch. As we've been playing the last few months, you've been playing with this new horn, and yeah. I know you're you love this horn. I can, yeah. You you're well, doing some interesting things with this horn that I hadn't heard you do before. And well, what had happened is, um, well, I met Zoner. In um, one of our trips over to uh, play in Ninda, and what had happened is uh, at that time my wife Nancy she was really into uh, road racing, and so one of the things is I said, "Well, how about we'll just go to Paris and we'll do the finish line in uh, Paris." And so we got tickets on the finish line for in, the 100th uh, running of the, the Tour de France. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. And so we were supposed to meet Brian in uh, Paris. He was flying in from D.C. to Paris. And I remember looking out the window, and I saw his Alborn case, because I knew, you know, which one it is. And it came on the plane, and then then it left, because (laughs) Brian had missed the flight. So his Alborn wasn't... uh, wasn't catching up with us, so it was actually like a week before it caught up with us. And so, in the meantime, I'd heard about Roland Zahner, who learned how to make alphorns from Gerald Poe, right? And he was making four-piece horns. So we were because we, we were headed to um, Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein, and he lives really close to the border there. So we went and met him, and then and then I decided, well, I'll just buy this horn because Brian didn't have a horn, and so that way he would at least have a horn if we'd never found the horn. So this is another interesting story because when I traveled, I would reduce the limit of how much I could get out of the bank with my debit card. So I had it down to 500 Swiss francs. And so Roland, he had a friend, took me down to the bank. So I got 500 Swiss francs out and then I paid him that. And then he also gave me a bank account number. So they just let me have it. That's amazing. And so Brian had that one, and so he was playing a Poe at that time, so it was very similar. And then it finally caught up with us before. Yeah, before the competition. Yeah. I don't remember exactly where. Yeah, so, but it, because it, we were moving around, and it's it was amazing. just, took a while. 
But uh, yeah, so people over there in Switzerland are very, very open, very friendly, especially when once you get to meet them. You know, if you're just uh, emailing them, right. it, it's a little bit harder to uh, agree to have a friendship or a relationship. But once you get to meet them, and then yeah, it's really nice. And so we were going to go last year to uh, actually we were going to go to Berlin to another Alporn retreat in Berlin, and that we. Oh, obviously we didn't get to go there, and then we yeah, were... Yeah, that was supposed to be end of April, early right. May last year, I remember so that, that didn't happen. And then, then it didn't happen. And then we were going to go to Paris for a little <laughs> bit, and then go to Ninda. And tour yeah. around, and that didn't happen, and then this year didn't quite pan out, so hopefully next year we can go. Yeah, in on it. And yeah, I'll, but be, I want, I'll be there with you th- this next year. I, wanna, okay. I really want to okay. see that happen. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Just go over there, and then it's just a nice event. You know, even if you don't compete, there. You know, the last time we were there was 179 Alporn players in a group. Yep. And then if you win, typically you are. You get uh, the pin, right? No, you actually get to. Uh, you, well, you get to pin the next uh, piece <laughs> right. for the next year. That's right. So if you're the winner, then they usually have you write the piece for the large ensemble. So great. So we'll see. Dad and I, when we when we can travel and the, the borders are all open and travels just open again, we're going to take a, a pretty big swing with our bugle piece, we hope. That, yeah. I can't wait. It, uh, you, you performed that a few weeks ago, and it was it's really great. I, li- I like what you guys are doing with this. Yeah, so, so, but the, this whole Alport <clears throat> thing has just really become unto itself. And in the process, what... Uh, I did was I met either you know via phone or letters uh, like uh, Joe Littleton, Morris Seacon, and then uh, Marvin McCoy, who yeah he Marvin was one of the first guys that really got the outpouring going in the United States along with uh, Gary Bang and Tim Dice and those guys down there, and so as they uh, Morris died or Marvin McCoy passed on so his daughters uh kind of em- embraced me because i was really interested and in fact i i bought one of their uh, shoebox horn from them so this is an interesting thing so i said yeah i'll, I'll buy it because yeah, it's, it's a well shoebox yeah. is a really good horn. noose bomb and shoebox are good horns yeah those are some of the early makers yeah, they really figured root, out how to right. do horns at a high level consistently. and replicate it yeah. Replicate yeah. Consistency. Yeah. to be able to do it right and so when i got the horn i got it out of the box and guess what name was on the side of the horn, on the canvas bag? Bill Hobson. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> so that was one of Bill Hobson's first horns, and I'm not sure if he sold it to Morris or to Marvin McCoy or not. But then, so I was like, Bill, guess what I have? I have this uh, shoot box. <laughs> I love it. So, so there's always, you know, it's a kind of a small world when it you is. really start uh, yeah, talking was, about really Alphorn players. And I was just going to say, as much as we're trying to expand it, you do get constant reminders that this is a, a small world in this Incredible. community. One of the things that uh, I had mentioned to you earlier this year, I, you know, I called you and I said, uh, I said, Tony, I'm really going to commit to this this year. I'm, I'm going to. No matter what, I am going to dedicate 10 to 15 hours a, w- a week to the Alphorn. I'm, I'm going to make this happen. And then I hear you tell me, yeah, I, I'm practicing sometimes 10 hours a day. <laughs> the, well, yeah, your, com- your commitment to, the, 
to music is just in, absolutely inspiring. And and I'll talk to you, and you've been practicing for six hours straight, and it's yeah, well, it's so, incredible. So how I able to practice that long is I don't beat myself up. So so I'll play, and then I'll just let it rest, and then I'll play, but I'll consistently. So I never get like unwarmed up. So I'm always warmed up, and then and that's a good way to uh, build your chops without tearing them down. But yeah. I, you know, but the thing is, I've been playing for you know since I was 11 years old. We talked last week, and you said, yeah, I, I just did a four-hour warm-up, and I'm going to go now practice for another four or five hours. It's, yeah, your, it's dis- a, your discipline is just un- it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's a lot easier being divorced. <laughs> yeah. I can play okay. until three or four in the morning. And nobody Nobody's tells, saying knock it off. No. I mean, it also helps that you don't live in an apartment. <laughs> yeah, like, no, you have I, a house, so your neighbors aren't. How about real the dog? Close to you. Oh, so does so the my dog, dog like it? Oh, so my dog. You know, I got her when she was seven weeks old, and uh, from the breeder that uh, we become really good friends. And I said, "Well, I, I have to have a dog. I have to have a companion." So, went up and got Daisy May, and brought her home, and she was seven weeks old. So that very first night. I got my Alphorn out, and so she went to sleep with her head on my foot, and so I played Alphorn for a couple hours, and then, so every time, if I'm just working on the computer, she constantly is dropping the ball (laughs) right on my computer or right next to me, but once I start practicing, then she just goes to sleep. It it just puts her to puts and her right to then she knows well that. dad's gonna be doing this for a while i might as well do this yeah so she likes it so and then my other dogs they really did not like high b flats on the trumpet sable uh, lisel yeah what, lisel. what um I mean, there's a lot of other directions we're gonna we'll do some more of this at, at another time but tell tell us something about the alphorn that maybe a lot of people don't know, and you you do have this history, and you're an expert on the Alphorn. What is it that? What is something that maybe is an interesting story about the Alphorn that most people are not? Well, what aware. I find interesting about the Alphorn is that, say, if I went out someplace and I was just playing my trumpet, and people just go, "Wow, that's nice," but if I get my Alphorn out. And it's the the way in which the tone's set up and the just the tone of the alphorn and the way it carries and it connects with people. It just really connects. Yep. And so the alphorn, even though it started out as a solo instrument, later becoming developed to where they can play in tune with each other, then they started playing in ensembles and now that has really taken off, right. especially in the last twenty, twenty five years. But you, you, I can go out and play by myself. And I just have just fun, you know, play with the mountains, you know, just play with the echoes. And I think that's what's really nice about it. And then a lot of people are just uh, amazed if they find out that you can play more than the Ricola commercial. (laughs) This is true. Um, I think, Sean, maybe to uh, speak to another side of the question that you just asked of dad, um, it's pretty well known. And there's a lot of stories that are told about cows responding yeah. to the alphorn either to be either be it that they come in for feeding or they come in and that's how they know that it's milking time and it helps them um, produce and let more milk for the farmers but since 
uh, you know, dad grew up in Wyoming and spent most of his life in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah. And we've been out in the mountains and in some kind of some, some of the high mountain marshy areas. We also know for a fact that not only do cows respond to the alphorn, but moose will also come into the alphorn upon occasion. <laughs> yeah, so one time uh, we were up at the cabin up in Pinedale, Wyoming, and some people wanted to hear me play the alphorn. So, okay, so I went out to the meadow, and they had their you know, lawn chairs or chairs out sitting out there. So I'm playing. Next thing you know, this bull moose jumps over the fence, oh, just looks at me. Oh, my goodness. Just looks at me and kind of... Shaking his head back and forth. You just kept playing. Yeah. You kept playing the whole time this moose is yeah. looking at you. Yeah. So the animals really <laughs> find it interesting as well. And like what Robert was uh, hinting on earlier, each one of the shepherds, what they would do is in the mornings, they would let their cows out for pasture. And then when it came time for them to come back in for either milking or for the night to be housed, each shepherd would have... Th- their own call that yes. he would play to or his cows would know that would, and then they would actually come back. And so you've got like, you've got the your own version of that, which I love, and you you often play that. And I, I mean, it's just this emotional connection that I have to the Alphorn and your style too. I mean, I just I tell you this all the time. I love just listening to you play you've got a very unique style very different than robert's style very different than bill's style mm-hmm. i just i love listening to you play i love you played that uh Del as well your version of it the other night which i thought was really great yeah one other question that i have for you is you and i played this year both in f and f sharp do you have a preference in or do you decide f or f sharp based on some oh uh, in North America, we typically will play in F. And I believe in uh, Germany, they tend to lean towards F as well. Whereas in uh, Switzerland, uh, F-sharp is the predominant one. And if you were to buy a horn in, from Switzerland that would play in F and F-sharp, they tend to actually play more consistently in F-sharp. Yeah, yeah, so it's just like that's so what it was made for. That's yeah, the, it was made for F sharp. The Swiss yeah. builders focus on horns and F, and for, focus on building their horns in F sharp, and then they will uh, make some minor adjustments so that so, they can play in F. And and it's not to say that they aren't very good still. That's um, right. But even like my po horn that you plays incredibly in both, it's when you play it in F sharp, you can just tell is like that's it. That's yeah. what this was built for. Yes. Do you prefer one over the other? Uh, not really. Um, the one thing about the F sharp is if you're playing in F sharp, the lower notes tend to speak more easily for me than if the F, it's the, the fundamental and then the pedal are a little bit harder than if it's in F sharp. But then again, the upper register is easier to play in F as opposed to the F sharp. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, but I, yeah. And everything we're doing this week, this weekend, is all F. Yeah. Yeah, for the most part, especially when you get into larger groups, unless you're in Switzerland where everyone already plays in F sharp. Um, right. When you get into larger groups here in North America, it, you almost have to be in F. Just <laughs> Most people don't have horns that can play in both keys. Yeah, and those accordion players just didn't want to play. <laughs> yeah, sure. when you when you start working with a company, it's got to be in. That's it. You got to be in uh, F. 
Uh, I'll throw out one yeah. key that I think that's really fun to play in where there's not very many horns that are built in this key, and most of the ones that you'll find were built in the 60s and maybe the 70s. Um, but I actually really enjoy playing in A-flat. Yeah. You said that to me before. That's it's, interesting. Yeah. Maybe I should go down and bring that up. Yeah. Maybe that's I should really bring that up and we well, can... So I have... I just purchased um, A-flat three-piece stalker outboard. Wow. Oh. And then Babe, um, somebody wanted to sell me one, and it just happened to be from Argyle, the music store was. We originally thought it might have been made in Argyle, which is her... Ancestral home, canton. Yeah. Canton. And so anyway, she has one in A-flat, and that horn plays really well. And so I have the stalker A-flat that plays really well. And then Robbie bought one that's in A-flat that uh, it plays very well by itself. It does not work well with others. If you have another one that plays in, if you have another one in a, plays in A flat, that that one that's kind of kind of wonky, that that might have to just find its way down to Austin with me. Well, it's on, I put it back on my wall. So. It's okay. I know. I know where your wall is. I, yeah, have, that's, I know how to find a, that. But A flat's really good, and then a lot of people, uh, because of the F sharp, there was quite a few outporns that were in G. Right. Because the, the accompanist would, could play in accompanying sure. alp horns in G. So I have a couple of horns. Actually, I have three horns that play in G as well. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was kind of the solution that they came up with um, going back to, I, I believe it was, I forget which Mozart it was. I think it was the, the older of the Mozart composers, but they have the Alphorn Symphony that was written in G, yep. which that was the answer to the for the accompanist right. before yeah, and that was the Alcorn players decided we could play in G. That's correct. But we could also play in F. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was uh What do you think about Arcady and Eliana and some of these really progressive, so talented artists that are on the fly shifting their Alcorns oh, to shift yeah. the keys. Yeah, so they're uh, really good and what you that, like that. You, uh, well, I like it because, it because um, when you start doing a whole bunch of Alphorn and it's all an F, there's not a whole lot of things you can do with it. So with like Lisa Stoll, she's one that... And Lisa is amazing. And so she would start out with... Uh, it played an F with a longer yep. attachment. And then she would take that out. And then she would modulate, do a direct right. modulation into F sharp. Right. And so... It, Gains some interest for the audience and also the players, and you and embrace that. You, yeah. yeah. So I just like to try make it a little bit more interesting. And it's like there's one piece that we do and we'll play it Sunday, Der Alpon Salber, and we actually modulate from F to G, and then there's certain notes that we can play in G in F. Right. So I can finish it out in that, but and it just kind of it adds some interest to the piece. So as, as musicians, a lot of the other people, they just they may not know why they don't why it becomes boring to them. They may not know why, but that's one of the things being able to change keys and everything. We played one of Robert's pieces today, <clears throat> which we played um, we played a lot. We played we played this piece a lot, and um, you must be so proud of Robert and his. Work and, yeah. and he's got this huge body of work that we talked about a few weeks ago that is really great work, and you must be really proud of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good. Yeah. It's 
So that's it's incredible. Good. It was fun playing that piece today, Robert. Yeah, so he has uh, how many more national well, parks you have to go through? In, in that series, there are 52 right. more currently. That's when easy. I When I started the project, there were 60 parks. Um, and since then, they've added two more, which it was going to be really easy. I was going to do six volumes of 10. And now I have to figure out where to do the math so that I can... And they just opened up a new one down in Guam or something? I don't know if they did a new national park in Guam, but they probably have a national monument yeah. for now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it right. was... The two most recent, it was uh, White Sands in New Mexico. Oh, okay. Uh, was the 61st, and then the 62nd was actually uh, the New River Gorge, uh, oh, right by that... where our, our very own instructor, Monica Hambrick, hails from. That's yes. right. That's, that's, that's a beautiful right. place to go out there. The echoes are great. I've been out there, performed there a few times. This has been amazing. We've got a lot of other things we could do. Anything else, Robert, to wrap this up? Um, I think that's. Uh, have any that, other questions? I think that for works for dad? today. Uh, we always have. You know, we'll we'll definitely want to have you on the podcast again and, and retouch some topics and and just get a you know a refreshed idea be it in six months or a year or, you know, whenever, and just see what is new that's happening in the Alphorn community. And this is something that I want to focus on with yep, uh, everyone sure. that we've interviewed so far is um, just kind of revisit and see, yeah, you know, then, what, what new work <clears throat> are people doing? What, what are the new projects? What are the new things that we've learned about the Alphorn? And just kind of show not only that there's a long history of it, um, but, you know, I think, Sean, you're on board with this is, going through and, and documenting that this is very much an active thing and, and how it's progressing over the course of a year, over the course of five, ten years, and, and just show that, yes, it is a historic and ancient instrument, but the language of Alphorn playing is very much alive. Yeah, and then the thing, when you go back to Arcadi, even Bill and Aliana Berkey, where they kind of have a take on it unto themselves. They do. Arcadi, far more jazz-oriented, whereas Aliana tends to be a little bit more pop-oriented, and but jazz. I suppose, I think... I, I think um, but very good. I, I think her focus is very much, she starts from a point yes. of jazz, and then it has worked to incorporate pop into that. I think Arcadi is, um, for a very long time, focused on just being... I think largely just experimental just to see right. what the limitations of the instrument were or if you could ever find those limitations. Uh, he's he's working on it. <laughs> pushing, there's no box. He's at, yeah. uh, pushing the limits. Yeah, we've worked with him about three times or four times. He's or an incredible like artist. And he he's just so a really incredible. nice, just, you know, yes. and that's one thing I like about the Alphorn community is uh, everybody, they bring something different. Every person does, but all have the same goal, just to yeah, and I enjoy think, the music. I think so far it's it's been nice that the the community is is growing, um, but so far it's still small enough that it it can't it hasn't really become clicky. I don't think at least here in North America we we haven't really been able you know there's not enough of us that we can spend time fighting with each other about what this is or what it should be. No, it's uh, um, and I guess no, my goal right. as as trying to um, influence this the direction of this as much as I can over the course of my career, but is just to try to maintain that balance of it's like there isn't a right or wrong answer in this, and we want everyone to be 
involved and not only just be involved but feel involved and feel like they belong in this community yeah and then kind of going along well to keep it going seems like the first part of june sonia reynolds um she has always had this alporn day utah alporn day and so we did that and then we actually had 10 like high school kids in junior high that's what you said students show up and then they're really excited about it and so that's encouraging because otherwise these art forms will just die out if you don't embrace uh, nurturing that and, and showing them that you know they can be part of it and just you know. but I see this energy I see this I mean here this just today that this energy and passion towards this that exists that I think is really exciting yeah and, yeah, and you've been a big part of it. You've been, you've been such an important part of this history over the last thirty years, Tony. And uh, I really admire your, you and your work. And well, thanks. And how many days did you ski last year? Oh, a bunch. So, despite bad hips, bad knees, a bad fall, oh. you're still on those Telemark skis. How many days? Jeez. I don't know. A lot. I, didn't, I didn't count, but every I, time I talked to you, you were skiing, yeah. or playing the Alporn. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and, then, and then, so this year, I plan. I got both the Icon and the Epic Pass. You did not. I, I did too. <laughs> Just in case okay. I want to go to a different slope. Hundred days this year. That that needs to be your objective. I can do that. Hundred days of telemark. Yeah, so the, got, I mean, if you got the option, you're you live about twenty five minutes from four of the best ski resorts in the world. So yeah, so you can you go to access. any one of them. Yeah, so I have the Icon Pass with uh, Solitude being my home ski area, and then the reason I got the Epic Pass is because my friend, when I lived out in Reno, I got, got some friends that we used to do a lot of skiing with, and then we do uh, mountains. So we'd cramp on up and then ski off. Oh and uh, so we would do that with old Fred Steinley. And so that's the reason I got the Epic Pass. Yeah, so that, that I could opens go up to some of the locations Lake in Tahoe. Yeah. So then right. I can ski around the Lake Tahoe Basin and then, uh, yeah, and then the Icon here. It's amazing. It's, a, it's amazing that you're doing that. So it's yeah. been fun. This has yeah, been amazing. Yeah, this is the, the first episode that we're filming live from the North American Alpine Retreat. Hopefully we get two or three more Absolutely. Uh, for the listeners while we're here. Yeah, and um, then the only other thing I would add is, like, uh, if anybody knows of other makers that they've been interested in, of Alporns, and then they're curious about getting one in without having to pay for one, so that's where I would be willing to bring in a different maker of horn and just find out what it's like and uh, then and then we can be we can be the guinea pig and then on that yeah absolutely and um to touch on earlier um what i talked about is us having a selection of horns uh one of the things that we do is all of the horns that we bring in um either my father or myself or ideally both uh, we'll play the horns and we will check and we'll do quality control on them so when you come to this retreat any horn that we have for sale is one that we would be comfortable performing a, a live yeah. performance. And to go back to what you were just saying, Dad, yeah, if anyone out here who's listening uh, knows a maker, or if you are a maker and you want to get some of your horns in the, into the United States, like we would love to work with you. And, and we're trying to not just build this community of players, but we want to 
have access to as many builders and, and find out what the yeah. methodologies are from all of them and mouthpiece makers and composers yeah. of Alcorn music. Yeah. And we want to build this a, a large collection and make it almost almost like an active museum where we have a large collection of everything <laughs> Alcorn related and then we make it open so that people can come experience that and, and try it and use it. Around yeah. the world. Yeah, and then yeah. if anybody ever gets down to Arizona, Scottsdale area, in the Musical Instrument Museum, if you go into the foyer, there's two Alphorns in there, and they got them from me. <laughs> I didn't know hanging that. In, yeah. Hanging there's on the walls. There's a story I, didn't, I haven't heard before. That's a great, yeah. Yeah. great one. Good. Okay, All right. it's been uh, fun. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, and for everyone who's listening, thank you for listening to the North American Alphorn Retreat.